Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, we're having a roundtable conversation about why humans don't understand other humans. And as my guests, I have Martin Lucas, who is founder and CEO of Gap in the Matrix. I have Amy Brown, who is founder and CEO of Authentics. And I have Rob Turley, who is founder and co-CEO of White Rabbit Intel. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, Amy, let's start with you. Could you give 30 seconds on your background for the audience, please? I am a 20-year veteran of corporate America, specifically in the area of healthcare. I became fed up with fear-based leadership and uh, also the fact that we were ignoring the human beings we were serving all day, every day. And so I decided to leave comfort of comfort air quotes of my corporate salary, go all in and launch Authentics. And our whole thing is to use, as you would say, Marcus, the small data to help leaders listen better. Excellent. Rob. How's it going? My name is Rob Turley, co-founder, co-CEO of White Rabbit Intel. And um, so what we do is that we build artificial intelligence for B2B. We are trying to democratize artificial intelligence for all businesses So whether you're large, medium, or small, it's affordable, effective, available, and simplified for everybody. Try to level the playing field so that small and medium-sized businesses can finally properly compete with their enterprise overlords. (laughs) Meaning enterprises are not bad. It's just that there are a lot of bad enterprises out there doing it for the right reasons and putting the people back into salespeople, connecting people at a personal level. Fabulous. And Martin? I'm just in love with the two guests that we've got on, Marcus. So first of all, thanks I for having me back on. You, but you <laughs> <laughs> as ever, your 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 selection criteria, and I hope I can come up to that mark. Like the the keywords of how Amy just described things, and the same with Rob, just fantastic. So I run Gap in the Matrix. So uh, I'm officially a weirdo. So I sold everything I had to spend four years working on literally the problem of why don't humans understand humans. So I'm a mathematician by trade. And I, I spent four years, and now we're in our sixth year of operations, and so four years decoding what the gaps are and why big data exists, why people cause all their problems, and, and why we just can't slow down time and just take a moment to understand how people think and feel and treat them accordingly. A fellow so, red pillar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Amy, can we bring you in on this? Authentics listens to probably, what, a billion, 10 billion calls a year and analyzes them. What are you learning from those conversations with between human beings that you can't learn from big data? We're learning that, I mean, I guess this is obvious, but we're learning that leaders really have no idea how to communicate with their customers in culturally competent ways. So there's this kind of very sexy, standard, formulaic what good customer experience looks like. And they're training their workforces to communicate per that formula. And the problem with that is that depending on their customer's culture, demographics, background, they may not resonate with the messaging. And it's just not striking the right note. And so in in corporates goal of being efficient and streamlined and standardized, they're actually excluding big sections of the population. And and in the world of healthcare, which is where we focus, that's critically important because it affects how people, what healthcare choices they make if they don't feel understood, if they don't feel like their healthcare company gets them, cares about them, etc. So we use the work we do to help leaders understand more deeply and contextually the perspectives of their customers. And I call our work, it's like holding up a mirror. It's holding up an ugly mirror. And believe me, I have gotten... Sometimes I'm not very popular when we go into the boardrooms because they don't want to hear it or see it. So it does take a a leadership team that's mature enough to want to hear, you know, the hard news. Thank you. Martin, can I bring you in on this? So you've spent the last six years researching and implementing 
and the understanding of where these gaps are. Why is it that they still persist, despite the fact the evidence the, the evidence is out there, but the results are not coming in? Why do market CMOs insist on communicating in a way they think is right rather than speaking to their customers? Why is it sales leaders uh, insist on propagating what are frankly ineffective, if not downright offensive, messaging and activity that uh, must alienate so many of their customers? It's a great question. I mean, to, to Amy's point is that we call it the mirror of life, right? Like when you have arguments with your family, we describe it as the mirror of life because what you're getting is kind of like a mirror version of yourself with just slight modifications. That's why you get into arguments with family members and stuff, right? And to Amy's point, it's like a lot of times people don't want to hear it, but the, the other thing is that people don't know what to trust necessarily, right? Like I knew that I, there's no way that I could bring my business to market talking about emotions and the science of decision-making and things like that. We had to do it by data-driven outcomes because that's what the CMO wants, but that's what the sales leader wants and things like that as well. So you've got to be able to tick the box with it. To answer your question with a little bit more truth behind it, I know we're going to talk about bias later. Bias comes into it all the time. And the problem with bias is that there's 180 different types of bias, but most of it happens unconsciously. So the thing that still scares me today is that a lot of our decision-making and prejudice and all, all, the, all the preferences that we've got come into our system by the time we're 14. Thereafter, it's very small modifications. So, of course, you've got a lot of CMOs and sales leaders even more so that are just doing things based on what they think matters. So they're just bouncing across their experiences and what they want. And when they don't know what they're doing, they just do it based on price and discounts. And that's where brands kill themselves left, right, and center all the time, consumer and B2B. Thank you, Rob. So you obviously spend a lot of time on trying to understand the match between seller and buyer or vendor and uh, buyer. And it must take an enormous amount of discipline to eliminate those biases from uh, the process. How do you go about doing that in such a way that you feel like you're getting the untainted picture of who your customer is and how to communicate with them? Sure. So there's no such thing really as data that's not biased because it was put there by humans. It's as simple as that. All data is biased unless it was something that was measured. And that would be like liquid or length or something like that. Otherwise, it is bias. So it's not possible to avoid the bias, but it's possible to process the data and look at it from a non-biased perspective. There has to be some rules set, but people need to understand, like with both what Amy and what Martin were saying, it's not about what you want. It's about what is currently and what will be. So the past and the present determine your future based on a set of a lot of different patterns. Understanding why people make decisions has a lot to do with psychographics. I actually did a webinar on psychographics, kind of delving into that because we're, we're pretty much laying down the foundation for that. People make decisions based on how they feel. It's intuitive thought. Intuitive thought is the opposite of logic. So if logic is based off of real data and numbers, intuition is based off of, yeah, I felt like that was a good conversation. Or, oh, I liked the product, so I wanted to buy it. Or I had a great experience with that representative. What's an experience? It's literally just an exchange of a conversation with uh, some sort of objective. That's all it is. So really, people buy, it, it, it boils down to this, people buy from people they like, that they can trust, and that they can relate to. So building the relationship is the most important part. I mean, think of insurance. Why would you switch insurance if they offer the exact same thing? Not because like there's a $4 decrease in cost or whatever, that's not enough money to even matter. The reason you switch insurance is because you may have spoken to an insurance representative or a financial advisor, and guess what? You had such a great experience. That you're like, wow, I want to work with them because they're really going to take care of me, even though it's virtually the same product, except for maybe one tiny, tiny sentence in the fine print. So really, it is a people game and it's understanding how people think, how they feel, what their aspirations are, where they're headed, where they want to go. And um, a lot of things in their personal life will reflect into their business, especially at a decision maker standpoint, but it's finding the group interest. So when a business makes a purchase, or if a business does business with another company or person, they're investing in the people in that business. 
the product or service is irrelevant because there are a million products and services that are just copycats of all the other ones out there. It's very rare that you find something truly unique. That's when that would kind of get discounted out of it. But if there is a choice, the choice is made based on the experience and the intuition behind it. Thank you. Okay. I challenge that slightly in that I think people have to trust you on the initial purchase. Liking you and knowing you can come later, but they absolutely have to trust that you have their best interests at heart. But so much of corporate sales is geared around the transaction, about hitting this month, this quarter's target. Instead of focusing long-term on the customer's selfish self-interest. And what I'm seeing increasingly or depressingly is very few organizations and uh, even fewer salespeople really understand that they should be thinking as the customer, not about them. And they should be selling as partners with the customer where they help each other get better. They're happy to enter into constructive conflict and where they are working towards those, the common objective of the outcomes that the customer wants uh, instead of serving themselves and trying to hit their quota or get this deal over the line this quarter um, so can, we can make our numbers. So, Amy, let's bring you in on this. Obviously, do, you do a lot of work around call centers. Now, these guys are heavily under pressure. They are taking dozens and dozens of calls throughout the day. And they're often dealing with people who are coming at it probably quite emotionally frustrated or concerned given the nature of uh, what they sell. What are you able to extrapolate from the data in terms of uh, simply understanding how to start the conversation and uh, where they need to focus their attention? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things we're learning the most has really little to do with the agents, the people taking the calls. Actually, our work has caused at least everyone in, in Authentics to be way more empathetic for the job of the call center agent and much more frustrated with the, the leaders that manage them um, because <laughs> they're, they're living in this paradox of hey, we're competing on customer experience. Just as Rob said, it's all about the relationship and, and having our customers like us, trust us. So create this wonderful customer experience when you're talking with, with our customers. So that's, that's the one side of the coin. The other side is, oh, and we need you to hit this quota every day. We need you to hit this many conversations, convert this many into sales or to solve problems. And we need you to do it on really crappy uh, technology. You're going to have five different screens and you have to document. I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of the hardest jobs there is to be a, a call center um, agent. And we often get hired by leaders to come in and, and figure out what their people need to do better. And I always tell them, well, 95% of what we're going to find is what you leader are going to need, need to do different and better. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of what we're learning is how challenging it is to produce a positive customer experience. And some of the outcomes of our work are leaders who have much more empathy for the, the sales force or the call center teams and are actually building in revised expectations for how to build a relationship and what that really means from a production standpoint. I think you've touched on a couple of things here. One is the critical importance of listening. And the second is empathy, which brings us to the human element. So Martin, I, I think I'm pretty certain that I've lost, uh, left millions of pounds on the table because I've talked my way out of sales. I don't think I've ever listened my way out of any. And it, experience tells me that being able to nurture, have a high degree of empathy, establishes a comfort and trust much faster. Why is it we as human beings find it so difficult to listen and to be genuinely empathetic? That's a great question. I mean, there's a few different variables to look at to, to answer it. One is that the brain is set up to make assumptions. We call it the efficiency trick, right? So we humans make 35,000 decisions a day. 
And it's easy enough for people to accept that how you dress and how you make a cup of coffee and things like that is a habit. But our thinking is a habit, how we listen is a habit, how we talk is a habit, how we make decisions is a habit. So there's a lot of people making assumptions about it. That's number one. That's the biggest problem, I think, for for leaders in this context. Number two is that because humans are looking for the easiest way to do things, we've got, and you talked about it and Amy was mentioning it anyway, we've got what we term the call center mindset where we're putting too much behavior into automation. And I'm not anti-technology and I'm not anti-call centers and it's, it's, it's not that at all. It's the fact that if you try and push too much assumption and automation into a system, it pushes customers further and further away, right? And there's tons of evidence of all this kind of stuff. And even when people try and do... MPS stores and uh, MPS scores and employee engagement, what do they do is they start implementing decision fatigue. So it's 60 questions. So eventually every employee starts starts scoring at 10 and then you're back with 98% customer satisfaction. So a lot of it is is very false. And then the ultimate thing is that we live in a, a capitalist society. Again, I have no issue with it. But the build a capitalist society is based on a learned model called he psychology. Right? And he psychology is more prevalent in the men, but not exclusively for men. Right, So we're not talking about gender, we're talking about learned thinking behavior models. And he psychology is uh, numbers focused, it's practical, and it lacks emotions. Whereas what every customer wants is she psychology, which is your hidden gem, because she psychology is emotional intelligence, connecting the dots, and storytelling. It's everything that every B2B and consumer brand should be doing from sales interactions to support interactions to how they do their marketing. But that's that's the issue that sits there. Is that a bit of a rant? It was three different ways. You got me excited. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> we like a rant. Um, so, Rob, <laughs> so Rob, again, let, let's delve into this. How can AI help us really hear what our customers are telling us rather than the assumptions that we uh, make that are filled with bias and ignorance? Sure, sure. First, I do want to touch on what Amy was saying with the leadership. It's always from the top down. And the difference between a good leader and a great leader is that a good leader knows how to lead. A great leader knows when to step down and follow. That's important because it means you truly care. And it's about coaching the people around you to become better than yourself, not about keeping them down and staying as the leader. The day that they lead you is the day that you succeeded, right? As far as what Martin was saying about things that are automated that shouldn't be, this is what's happening all the time. There are plenty of things out there that are automated for the convenience or whatever you want to call it, such as, I mean, I think email automation is terrible because so impersonal. You know when you're getting talked to by an automation or a bot or anything like that. There's no emotional intelligence to it. There is no way to actually make it about them because people are so different the way that they're spoken to and what they do. There is no one cookie cutter message. There's none. As far as AI that's able to help is that looking at the the data from a non-biased perspective where it's not about what you want or what you want to tell it what to do. For example, what we do, it's not a report. You're not getting a report. A report is something where you say, well, I have this data, that data, and I want to see this. It's not about that. It's about what is there and then what will be from what is there. So what the leader wants or what the company wants is always going to be different. It could align, but it's always going to be different from what the customers want. Ultimately, it's what the people want. You have to give them what they want. What they're asking for and why they're asking you for it is because they want it and what they need may be something that they don't necessarily want. So you need to help them buy something and help them understand and have them use a technology that will help them understand what their needs actually are by looking at what they're looking to do. So they have their goal in mind. AI really helps when you use a unsupervised machine learning model, meaning it's not something where you you set all of the rules and then you tell it exactly what data to process with the exact goal in mind. It's about looking at it from a non-biased perspective of it's not about the goal. It's not about anything. It's about what are the materials that are in front of you? How can we process these materials to piece together the most efficient use of those materials? So if you're looking at matchmaking, like what we do, it's taking all the materials, all the successes, all the failures, understanding it, looking at the transactionals and everything, processing that, and then defining this is the person you should be targeting. Not what you want to be, oh, the VP of sales in Fresno, California at a tech company doing 40 plus million in revenue. It's about, okay, 
X amount of the people that you've sold to like baseball, Y amount drive a Porsche 911. Okay, great. So what does that mean? Oh, well, they're also from X high school. They graduated a Y year. And it's looking at all of these different things that you wouldn't even think about. And it's pulling the bias out based on how the relationship is going to go. So you can connect people to people that will have the highest probability of having a positive engagement because they're more likely to trust people they can relate to. People are more likely to do that. And if it's relatable, then you're usually going to try to deliver them something that they want or that they need in a way that they want to hear it. So the more people have in common, the more likely they are to help each other in a way that is desired by the person who's being sold to. Very interesting. So this is about finding, you know, birds of a feather flock together. You're trying to find those areas of commonality between yourself and your prospects, the people that you're marketing to, so that you can engage at a level and you meet them where they are. Yeah. So is that what you say? S- yeah. Selling to people, you want to sell your product, right? Or you want to sell your service. What you want is not what people want. So it's finding where the wants will align, which is often the same type of uh, personality profile, a certain type of business that has a certain type of thinking. So if you just say, I want to sell to these people, whether you should or shouldn't is not necessarily true or false. It's about what type of person should I be speaking to, to sell what I want to sell. Okay, very interesting. So Amy, bringing you back in. I know when we first spoke, you talked about how you have a group of diverse social scientists to observe the data um, so that you can at, uh, minimize the impact of bias. And again, I think that builds on Rob's point that by having those filters or those people filtering the data, then you can ensure that there is more close alignment Uh, between who the customer really is rather than who the company thinks they are. Tell me this, by doing that, what have you learned by having these data scientists, uh, sorry, these uh, social scientists collaborate and challenge one another? Uh, Because I suspect that some really fascinating insights must have come out of that. Yeah, so just to affirm what you just shared, the way we use natural language processing, which is the kind of subcategory of AI that we work in, we utilize it to help point our clients' ears to the content that they most want to hear about. We are in the business of helping humans understand humans, not eliminating humans um, from their job <laughs> of listening. And so we, in order to do that effectively, you know, a lot of times clients will say, well, here's the topics we care about. And we would expect customers to use, you know, these particular words and phrases. So this is how you need to program the algorithms. And what we say is, hey, look, you know, we will look for those topical areas, but we are then going to use social scientists to study a statistically significant data sample to see what's not getting caught by the NLP algorithm that is still means the thing that you want it to that should be caught. And what we've learned is that different people use different words to describe their experience. And there was bias in the keywords or the design of the original algorithm. And so, for example, you asked what's something that we've learned and what we've, we've debated internally as a team. One really interesting thing that we're currently actively debating is what constitutes empathy between two human beings? Empathy is such a popular thing for companies to measure. They know it's important. But how one person communicates empathy and how their customer receives it is different. And we're learning that there are some cultural differences there. And we've actually heard call center agents convey empathy differently depending on their perception of who they're talking to. Um, and, and so being able to put empathy in a formula is not as easy as I think corporates want to believe because it really is, it's just like beauty's in the eye of the holder, you know, empathy and what it sounds like and feels like is 
is kind of determined by the human being that's receiving it. So we're just, we're learning a lot about that. I would even say that um, what you're talking about is that I agree with you 100%. First off, second is the abstraction of sentiment. That's what it is. Sentiment is a completely abstract thing, if you will. And trying to use something that uses logic to define the abstractions is very difficult because it can mean one thing or another just by the tone in which it's said. So there's quite literally trillions of differentiations between how someone would say the same thing. Let's say if it was an hour-long meeting, there are trillions of different perspectives that could be put into mind by that. But how do we know which is which? And using AI to be able to analyze all of those patterns with the social scientists um, and social data scientists that are looking at all of this and reviewing all of it. But that's still one thing or another. And uh, even social scientists, they're trained not to be biased, but every human being's biased because that's how the brain works. So using a team, because they will contradict each other all the time. So it takes a long time to just keep piling it and piling it, piling it and piling it up until you can finally get a data set large enough to be able to understand even one form of sentiment to its entirety. And I think, you know, what, what our objective is, is, I mean, not to eliminate bias because that's, that's impossible if we're working with human beings, right? But it's to just to even bring awareness to human beings that there is bias in their own thinking is a step right. forward, right? Just to acknowledge, hey, I know I'm biased when I'm listening to this or when I'm interpreting this. And it, if there's anything we're trying to do right now, it's to help leaders have a broader perspective that A, they have bias and B, to think, to think about their customers as not being a homogeneous group. And they can't just assume that they can't make their assumptions don't necessarily apply to their customers. We're trying to help them understand that. It's social awareness is the huge determining factor. The more aware someone is of themselves, their self-consciousness, and the more they're aware of the society around them and the environmental aspects that manipulate that society, the better off they're going to be with being able to adjust to understand the, the, the differences and the nuances between their customers and their partners. If any of you listening have not yet come across Project Implicit by Harvard, it's well worth going on there. And essentially, it looks at your implicit biases and it has pairings, so black and white, good and bad. And depending on the speed with which you respond to the pairings, it gives an indication of just how biased you are. And if you want to raise your awareness, start there. And it on race, gender, weight, age, all that kind of stuff. It will rip the scales from your eyes. Even if you are the most tree-huggy, hippie liberal, you're biased. So Martin, let's uh, drag you into the conversation at this point. Clearly, you've spent a lot of time working with corporates and seeing the negative impact of people at the top having biases and the impact that has not only on top and bottom line, but also on customer loyalty and customer retention. Do you mind just elaborating on that a little, please? Sure. I mean, the a few things come to mind with the question. One is we've got a huge product going on with an automotive company at the moment. Europe and parts of Asia is what we're working on. So lots of different markets and things like that. And we're, we're analyzing all the messaging that they're sending out. Neurodesign, neurolinguistics, so like the imagery that they're using, the language that they're using. And it's a same right across the board, right? Where everybody's selling engine metal, engine metal, engine metal, engine metal price, engine metal, engine metal, engine metal price, right? And the real reason that attracts people throughout their journey to, to considering and getting a car runs into hundreds of different things. But because of this KPI numbers focused world, it's like we, we do a lot of what I call end game thinking. Right, which is also a big part of he psychology, right? Where end game thinking is like price, discounts, what is the product? And just to give you another example, we're just doing some work on affluent holidays. So meaning people that have got money that buy a fancy holiday, right? And we were looking at the real reasons why people buy. And we were doing it was it was in line with what Rob what both Rob and Amy have been speaking about, which is really cool, in that it's full of bias and sentiment analysis drives me nuts. Like I think that there's a lot of false red headings with it because it's like 
I'm really unhappy, so here's some sentiment, and I'm really happy, and here's some sentiment, and that's just on Twitter when I'm trolling, right? That's one of your biggest gaps of sentiment. Whereas the truth, if we look at affluent holidays, like what do people actually speak about? So we're doing some work. We just completed a project on the Maldives yesterday, right? I didn't get a free holiday out of it, but I'm still working on it. And one of the guys say well enough. (laughs) Oh, I'm terrible. I'll send you in next time. One of the core 18 things that matter to people, right? And we're putting into experiences is the coconut sorbet. That's what over (laughs) 5,000 people spoke about of the top 18 things. And one of the others was how they were thanked. How they were thanked by staff. These are reasons why people buy. It's how it triggers people's sensory association, which is your biggest thing about retention and resale and loyalty. Loyalty is a feeling. It's not a price, right? So my point is that there's all different reasons why people buy. And we've been doing a lot of work on race and prejudice as well and looking at pattern recognition of how the media keeps enforcing negative perceptions of different genders and different people. So even though all these articles are saying we're not doing it, there's still an unconscious force that is driving people that sometimes it's horrible things like racial bias, and prejudice bias and gender, and sometimes it's coconut sorbets, and sometimes it's just people are just focused too much on the end product. But it all comes back to the same thing is that we just make, we make assumptions and we go to the quickest route to find our answer to something. Well, this then brings me to the next point, which is I think Patience is something that seems to be sadly lacking. And I I see this a lot in salespeople and particularly leadership. They're impatient. They make assumptions. They don't do the research. They don't speak to the people who are likely to be their buyers. They don't go back and speak to the people who hate them because they've managed to piss them off. And they're afraid of hearing this criticism to build on Amy's point earlier on. What is it that needs to change in leadership and their outlook uh, for this kind of volitional deafness to their their customers to come to an end or at least to be minimized? Uh, Martin, let's start with you on this one. It's a difficult question, right? The thing that comes to mind for me is that the awareness part, right, that Rob was speaking about and the part that Amy's been pointing out to people as well. And the reason I mentioned both of them is not just because they're, they're guests on it. If you, if you combine and replay it, and this is what my brain's processing at the moment, is you're, you're coming back to these similar points about people don't think the way that we presume. People don't act the way that we presume. People are not looking for price and discounts. And you've spoken about yourself, Marcus, is that people need trust architecture within their system. And what the consumer and what the buyer in the B2B sense is looking for is somebody that they can trust, somebody that's proven something that they can do. And a lot of it comes from social proof. It's still the number one type of psychology influence. I mean, behavioral economics and nudge theory is still another type of psychology. It comes up in neuroscience as well. Like we look for people like me, right? And it's not necessarily age or gender. It depends on the context. And that's, that's one of the biggest gaps for me is that if you understand the context, which is what Rob was getting at, that it's not about who you think your target market is. It's about the different variables about what people are interested in. And therefore, you can actually understand who your customer is. And it works the same for employees. I mean, I would like to, I'd love to hear Amy's point of view on this because she's much closer to it. But the idea of business values just drives me nuts because it's just a PR exercise. Whereas what it should be is a behavioral psychology dreamland where you're driving positive behaviors that flows into how you treat your customers. So that was a general rant, but I'd I'd love to know if it's okay. (laughs) I'd love to know your point of view on it, Amy. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, The the question of what do leaders need to do differently? And I'm really intrigued by what Martin mentioned in terms of he psychology. I got to (laughs) go research that. I I really liked what you were saying there. And I think it's my answer is related. To me, the biggest epidemic in corporate America is fear. And the fact that leaders at the top, more that I have seen more lead by fear than by authenticity. Um, What I mean by that is, is that the human beings at the top are afraid themselves and have their own insecurities And that just trickles down everything else within the entire organization, including, you know, what people are 
focused on, um, they're focused on hitting their metrics, not on necessarily listening and understanding and doing the right thing by the customer, but instead they're, they're driven by the leaders that, above them that are, I just call it fear-based leadership. So the biggest thing that needs to happen is the leaders at the top need to have self-awareness and become okay with being a human being. I don't know if you've read John Carrier's book, Bad Blood. It's about Theranos, the dodgy diagnostics company. And again, what you're talking about there is absolutely mirrored in the experience that uh, the employees were going through there. Over, I think it was two years, 30 senior executives got fired. Um, Now, bear in mind, this was a startup and uh, they managed to swindle vast amounts of money out of their investors through uh, lying and um, going out to market with uh, an unfinished uh, product and fiddling the data. And that whole ethos of fear seems to ripple through many organizations. But what I also worry about is the lack of attention to listening to employees. Martin sort of touched on it with the NPS score and uh, employee surveys. And I see this in sales organizations, and I see this in uh, the way vendors treat their partners, that they don't listen to the people who are at the sharp end. And this, I think, is really key. So, Rob, can we bring you in on this? If leaders are going to really develop environments which are places that people want to work, are really genuinely engaged, and if your staff are happy, if your partners are happy, you end up with happy customers. It's a byproduct. It's a symptom of it. What needs to change in terms of how leaders are listening to their people? Right, for sure. So first off, in any company, culture is king. And often in those really, really large corporations that, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They've been living that way for who knows how long. And all that's starting to change especially with everything going virtual. I mean, there are companies still put everything on paper and they drive to every single location to make a sale. First off, that's wasteful because uh, company cars, gas, everything like that. There's so many expenses. You may as well have the first meeting digitally, even if you want to go there, just so you can see if it's the right type of person to speak to. But speaking to your employees as if they were a customer and a good customer is at that. Because people, just human beings in general, what they live for, psychologically, whether you think so or not, is confirmation, affirmation, appreciation, but most of all, which is the most powerful form of control is validation. People are dying to be validated and they're constantly invalidating themselves. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. You're invalidating yourself. Or, oh, I think this way about myself. It's negative. That's invalidation. And validating somebody is the kindest thing you could do to them because it's quite literally telling them that they are okay, that they check out, that their thoughts matter. So confirming them, validating them, giving them affirmation, saying, yes, absolutely, you're doing the right thing. Giving them appreciation, saying, you did a good job. I spoke to somebody that I was potentially going to be hiring, and I asked them, this is one of my interview questions, for example, when was the last time you felt appreciated at work? He started laughing, went silent for about five whole minutes, and said, I don't know, maybe December. (laughs) That's disgusting. Disgusting, at the very least. They do not care about their employee. You need to care about them because for them to care about the company and your business and the customers, guess what? They need to care about them. And unless they feel cared for, they're not going to give care to others because you give what you're given. So you need to receive and what you receive is what you give. And it all flows through. It's like an energy almost. It's a wavelength that needs to be established in a business. That's how a company can become more effective. The employees are going to be more on board. And also, if they like their leaders, they want to do things for them, they'll go above and beyond. Well, that's where and, you get discretionary effort. And right. it's, it's so rare that you can uh, get discretionary effort. But the best managers are ones who the people in the team will recommend to people they trust and they like to join the team. That's one of the best indicators that a manager is good at what they do. Even if they're unqualified, yeah. And I mean, the greatest fear, as you were talking about, uh, driven by fear, the greatest fear of humankind is uncertainty. Whether you're afraid of death or public speaking or anything like that, you're afraid of what's going to happen after. There there was a meta study about 10 years ago that I read about 
and it was 330 studies on mankind's greatest fear. And uh, it was the future because with it comes uncertainty. Now, right. to build on your point, I think one of the most powerful skills and that any salesperson, any marketeer, any manager can have is to be able to validate, then fascinate. And um, I, I look at, um, there's a, a wonderful, slightly depressing summary of uh, what drives human beings, which is people will do anything for those who encourage their dreams, justify their failures, allay their fears, confirm their suspicions, and help them throw rocks at their enemies. Thus validation. Yes, and correct. that's validation. Marcus, we had, we had one last week, Ian, one of my business partners, didn't live. We, got, we went to see a customer on Friday, like in real life. We saw real life people. It wasn't a Zoom call <laughs> or anything, right? And he said, um, what are we going to wear? I said, just dress how you dress. And he goes, oh, that's great advice. And, and in a funny way, it's, it's, it's that simple, right? In terms of everybody's looking for permission to do as much or as little as you give them permission to do, right? And again, if we look at the capitalism, the he psychology build, right? Is so much of it is trying to put people into a box, putting people into the into that mental cage, putting them into cogs. So I'm just throwing as many philosophy based uh, keywords in that I can, right? And the reality is that this fluffy stuff, this unmeasurable stuff, is the thing that causes business to self destruct. We've got a paper coming out soon about how uh, the hospitality and retail industry literally operationalizes its own self destruction. We've done tons of work and we've got 25 brands in it that people know in various different regions saying this is how they actually destroyed themselves. And it's all in line with these things that we're saying because you're trying to control the thinking of your employees, not just the doing, but your thinking. Like the call center stuff, right? Like if you give people permission to know that they have got the capability, the rights and the rules allow them to interact with people and understand the customer's context, then the world changes. But that's not what happens. People will learn more and do more. It's about planting seeds and they'll learn more and do more if they can think for themselves. And as a leader, you should be planting these seeds so that they come up with the idea themselves. And often it will grow and flourish into something greater than you even thought it would be or where you would have been able to take the idea where you wanted them to go with it. If you are a soulless capitalist, let me give you some statistics that will wake you up to why this isn't fluffy. It was a study on the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016. And what they found was the companies with highly engaged employees generated 430% higher profit per employee, 290% higher revenue per employee, had 40% lower churn, and had 20% higher productivity. But share price grew over 300% faster year on year where companies were highly enga- uh, had highly engaged employees. So, Amy, let's bring this back to you. When, when you've been able to implement these changes through listening to the customers, listening to the conversations with the call center reps, what impact has that had on the mechanics, the running of the organization, uh, the general culture and the well-being of the staff? Yeah, want to just quickly say that I, I feel that one of the most important things that leaders can do is to allow their people to be authentic, authentic to who they are. And for, for folks who have grown up in corporate environments, oftentimes it takes years for them to figure out what authentic means to them. But I have found that the most highest performing teams that I've worked on or worked with have been people who feel like they can be who they authentically are just to affirm the stats that you put forth. In terms of your question, Marcus, about what has been the outcome of of some of our work and how has it changed the mechanics of the companies we've served? First off, we've seen leaders who remember why they got into the business for the first place. When they start listening to the actual voices of their customers, and we try to make it efficient and effective for them. But when they start listening, they actually start to become human again. <laughs> they, they start to remember why they were inspired to get into that line of work, why they were inspired to be leaders. They remember who they're serving. So that has we have seen just an amazing kind of psychological transformation on the leadership team even before they get to, well, what, what does this mean for our business operations? 
we've then seen them respond much more informed and inclusively when they think about the messaging they're putting forth, when they think about um, how to support their call center teams instead of get more out of them. Uh, From a production standpoint, we see them trying to support them with ways to allow them to serve their customers better. We've seen improved employee engagement because of listening more effectively. We've seen a lot more validation to speak to Rob's point on the part of the, the frontline work staff who are saying, oh, finally, these leaders are hearing the things that we hear all day, every day, and they're allowing us to now respond to the the true voices of the customer that we're having to handle all day, every day. They're finally getting it. You know, our leadership team is finally getting it. Those are just some of the outcomes of our work. Martin, let me bring you back in. You had some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, the if I take what Amy's just said, right, which is absolutely brilliant, by the way, Amy, no business has somebody that is employed to understand the voice of the customer. And I'm not talking about surveys. I'm not talking about people trying to justify their customer satisfaction or their MPS scores or their employee engagement scores, right? The reason why humans don't understand humans and why we're having this podcast today is you've got... Amy's got a fantastic service that I've just learned about today, right? But it's literally about listening and understanding the truth of what's going on. Rob was talking about the truth of what who, what, and who your customers actually are and how to replicate and understand who those customers are, right? And I spend my life literally explaining to businesses, this is why your customers buy from you. This is the real reasons. It's the coconut sorbet. This is why they don't buy from you, right? They're rich people. They've got expensive holidays. They don't care about price. They want to know what kind of sorbet is in it for them, what they're going to get that other people can't get. And I'm just giving a holiday example. But the same thing is is true, right? We're constantly looking for the real reasons why we buy. And it's hard for individual humans to explain it. So if it's hard for an individual to explain it, then it's never going to work for a, a business leader to go out and say, I've got an idea. We call it the whim of the CEO, right? The whim of the CEO, the whim of the CMO, They cut down a campaign, they have an idea, they change everybody's behavior, like all of it, but it's never based on that truth. I think that's the opportunity today, Marcus. If you've got three of us, and I know you're a big advocate of this, that are all coming from a different dimension of sharing that kind of truth. This is what your customers want. This is the voice of what your your customer is. And, And it doesn't exist in business. It doesn't exist in that capitalist build. It doesn't exist in the silos of business, in my opinion. It it never crossed my mind ever when I set this business up, that someone would come to me because they wanted to prevent their horse from going to the knacker's yard. And uh, Jacob is, uh, I think it's 11 years down the road, still jumping over fences. It never crossed my mind that someone would come to me for training because they wanted IVF treatment, because they desperately wanted children. It never crossed my mind that someone would come to me uh, for training because they ran out of space for their modern art collection and they wanted to knock the flat next door through so they could double the space so they could put their art up. The reality is we don't know unless we ask and unless we listen. Authentically listen, we're fully present, and we are focusing our attention 100% on the customer, not on what we're trying to sell to them. So let's just wrap this up. Uh, One one point from each of you, please. Uh, Rob. 30 seconds on your uh, final thoughts on this podcast. No problem. Yeah, I do want to say that uh, the key thing is validation. The key thing is listening because humans, every single human being, no matter who you are, all want to be listened to. They want to be heard. But the problem is, is that no one wants to listen, but everybody wants to be heard. So if you can take the initiative to be the listener, you've immediately put yourself at the top of the list because listening is validation, it's affirmation, it's confirmation and it's appreciation all in one. It's everything. So listening is the most important thing and that's what businesses need to learn to do. And it's not about what you want, it's about what they want. It's not about what you want, it's about what the data says and what is actually happening. And often the things that matter most are things that you will probably think are irrelevant. It could be something as simple as that coconut sorbet. Or the fact that you're a really, really large Barcelona fan. That could be the biggest thing. That could be the tipping point. You're calling me fat. 
man. <laughs> you said a large Barcelona fan. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I, I got you. Yeah. No. It's all right. Hey, I'm a Barcelona fan too. So. Uh, Amy. Yeah. We are all biased. That's one thought. And the best, the best thing we need to do right now, especially right now is be intentional about our own self-awareness of our bias and if we can do that, then we can help in our businesses and we can help our world. So starting with self-awareness of our biases, best thing we can do right now. Excellent. Is there anything that you can recommend to read about that or any resources that people can... I liked what you suggested, the Harvard uh, Business Project, Project Implicit. Uh, yeah, let's do that. We all need to do a test of ourselves. Yeah. It, 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 I'd love to hear how you get on because when I did it, it was a shock. So yeah, Martin, your parting thoughts? Um, I would. I, I agree with the sentiment of, uh, <laughs> I don't need to use that word, but I agree with what was just being said, right? And there's a book called Invisible Women that's about the, the, the data bias and it's an absolutely fantastic read. And if you did the, the Harvard test, it's going to open your eyes and you're going to get more awareness from from how you operate. So that's going to help you. And if you read that book, it's really going to show you how deeply that we've got an issue in the world in terms of that kind of bias that goes into absolutely everything. So that would be my summary of it. Just wanted to say, I thought that it was an absolutely fantastic episode and a real privilege to be part of. So it's lovely to meet you, Rob and Amy. Thank you. Of course. Oh, and, and take a Myers-Briggs test. Also a good recommendation. Understand what your personality actually is. Very good. So Amy Brown, Rob Telly, Martin Lucas, thank you. This has been an outstanding episode. I hope we can do this again because there's a whole load of stuff that I'd like to do uh, to explore around compensation, hiring, culture, and so on. So um, I hope to have you all back soon. In the meantime, this is me, Marcus Kauke, signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please do get in touch. And you can email me at marcuskauke at me.com or Marcus at laughs-last.com. And I'll put all of the guys' details on the post so that you can get in contact with them. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.